probably been challenged to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to, to kind of experience uh, their thoughts, experience their life. And, and really the challenge is that if you saw things from their perspective, if you saw really what happened behind closed doors, if you saw um, what was going on in their life, then maybe it would change your opinion of them. Maybe it would change how you interacted with them. And maybe it would change uh, how you responded to them or, or expected them to respond to you. And uh, maybe you were challenged by a teacher or someone uh, you knew. Hey, put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about it from their perspective. Before you judge them, before you respond, uh, think about their personal experiences and their challenges and their thoughts. And uh, some of us have heard that phrase for a really long time, but I was kind of surprised that phrase really goes back uh, much longer than I thought it did. It actually came from a poem that was written in 1895 called Judge Softly. And it was actually written uh, as kind of a challenge for folks to understand the Native American struggles and, and Native American culture. Um, and, and that if we would walk in their shoes or really their moccasins, as the writer put it, uh, that we might see things different. We might understand their struggles from a different perspective. And so I want to share with you the words of just part of this poem. It's kind of lengthy one, but the part of it says this, Do not be harsh with men or when a man that sins, or pelt him with words or stones or disdain, unless you are sure you have no sins of your own, and it's only wisdom and love that your heart contains. Just walk a mile in his moccasins before you abuse, criticize, and accuse. For just If just for one hour you may find that a way to look and see through his eyes instead of your own muse. As we turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 4, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews and we get to the very end of chapter 4 this morning, three simple verses, 14, 15, and 16, that shows us a God who does just that, a God who, who walks in our shoes, chose to take our place from our perspective so that we can have His shoes, that we could in turn walk in His shoes. And so this morning, I want to invite you uh, to see this God who is full of wisdom and love, see this God who has no sin of his own. And so I want to invite you uh, to Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 this morning and see this great high priest that has walked in our shoes. And so Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Let's pray together. God, this morning... I pray that we realize how privileged we are that we have a God that loves us so much. God, I pray this morning that we realize how great of a God we have that chose to walk in our shoes, to see our struggles and our heartaches and our heartbreaks, all so that we could walk in your shoes of righteousness. So God, this morning I pray that your word speaks powerfully into our lives this morning. God, I pray that we are challenged in the way that we view you and see you. God, I pray that we are honestly overwhelmed by the grace and love that is available to us. 
And then we will do exactly as this passage calls us to do. God, in the stillness of this moment, let us approach your throne of grace. But God, let us do it with boldness. Knowing that you have walked in our shoes so that we can walk in yours. So God, I pray that in this next few moments, God, we will walk to the throne of grace and we will just sit at your feet and just be overwhelmed by the grace and the love and the mercy that has been poured out over and over and over on us again. So God, as we sit, I pray, God, that you speak. And I pray that the words of your text, God, just saturate our life. So God, I pray that you move me out of the way. And that your words are strong. And God, I pray this morning, as we said last week, God, that your words are alive and they're active in this moment and they're sharper than any two-edged sword, God. So I pray that you speak and I pray that we listen, Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Many of you sitting here are probably more familiar now with the name of Jorge Solar uh, than you were just a few years ago. For you guys that don't know him, he is an outfielder uh, for the Atlanta Braves. But he has a title uh, that no one else is able to claim, at least not for another year or so. You see, he uh, has the title uh, of being the World Series MVP. And what helped him gain this title this past or month was the fact that he hit three home runs by himself. All right, and by the way, that's more than the whole Houston Astros put together by the whole team in the six-game series. He hit three home runs and six RBIs during the six-game series. His first home run was as the leadoff batter for the Braves in the very first game, meaning that the very first time that the Braves got up to bat, he hit one out of the park. It's never been done in the history of the World Series. And I don't know about you, but like that sets a tone for how this series is probably going to go right there. If the very first batter gets up there and he nails it out of the park, that we, if you're a Houston Astro, you're probably like, wow, these guys are serious. Right? And then his second home run came in the fourth inning, or excuse me, in the fourth game, and he was, in that game, he was a pitch hitter, um, meaning that for some of us, we're not baseball people, but I looked this up. This means that he's a sub. All right. He wasn't even a starter in that game. He was a backup for somebody else. And he comes in in just this moment to hit this one time, and he hits this ball out of the park in the fourth game. And in the sixth game, he comes in, and he smashes this three-run homer so hard that I think they're still looking for the ball to return to earth because it's out there somewhere. But he, he did all these great things, and he earned this title that nobody else can claim. At least they can't claim it for another year. There's not going to be another World Series MVP for at least another year. And there's never going to be another World Series MVP of 2021. You see, he doesn't just get to claim the title of a professional baseball player. There's lots of folks that can claim. There's hundreds, probably maybe even thousands of people who can claim the title of a professional baseball player. There's even a few hundred that can claim the title of a World Series champion, right? In fact, all the Braves this year can claim that title, and none of them were alive the last time that they could claim that title. But for this year, that whole team gets to claim that title. They are all World Series champions, but only one of them gets to claim the title of the most valuable player. Only one of them 
gets to say that he contributed more to that team and the outcome of the series than anybody else. See, without his contribution, that team and the outcome of the series would have been totally different. So he is, according to those who voted on and decided, the greatest player of the World Series in 2021. And no one else can claim that title. It is his and his alone. And as we work through the book of Hebrews, uh, we're in this last part of chapter 4, and we're going to find out that Jesus is given this title, this uh, position, that nobody else can claim. Nobody else has authority to claim it. Nobody else can claim this title. Nobody has ever claimed it. Nobody's going to be able to claim it. And so we're going to see in verse 14 is just kind of this reminder uh, that, that verse 14 of chapter 4 is what we've decided to memorize this month. I've challenged you guys as a church uh, to memorize verses every month. And so we're working through the book of Hebrews. And this is the one for this month, verse 14 and verse 15. And the reason I selected these verses is because these two passages are at the heart of the Christian message. This is the heart of the Christian faith. That This is who Christ is. And if we'll learn who Christ is, we'll appreciate Him in, in such an amazing way. And so we want to look in verse 14 this title that he has that nobody else can claim and so in verse 14 it starts off it says therefore since we have a great high priest that's it that's the title right there that he he's not just a priest there there are literally thousands of those and there's been thousands of them throughout israel's history he's not just a high priest because there there's they've had those all right in fact when jesus was alive there was a high priest and it wasn't him in fact, it was a guy who really hated Jesus uh, and, and didn't like Jesus at all. Right? So he's not just a priest. There's thousands of them. He's not just the high priest. Every generation has had a high priest. He is the great high priest. He, he is more than any other high priest has ever been in the history of Israel. And the, so this is a distinguishing title that's only given to Jesus. And so what the author does is he spends the rest of verse 14 and verse 15 telling us why he is this title. Why he contributed so much. Why is it? What's his stats? This is his, his six uh, RBIs and his three uh, home runs. This is what makes him better than the rest. And this is what makes him more valuable than anything else. And really, he starts this kind of argument, this line of thought here in verse 14 of chapter 4. And really, it runs all the way through chapter 5, verse 11, or verse 10, which we won't get into chapter 5. We're going to save that for next week, right? But it starts this idea of why he is a superior priest to anybody else and why he is the great high priest. But in verse 14, the first thing that makes him the great high priest is that he is situated in heaven, that his position and his placement allows him to do things that nobody else can. You see, one of the amazing things about Jorge Solar that makes his story so amazing is that he earned this title with all these great accolades. He earned this title of being the World Series MVP in October. But just three months before that, he was not even an Atlanta Brave. In fact, he didn't even live or play for Atlanta. Right? He was living in Kansas City, playing for the Kansas City Royals in July. But on July 30th, they made this switch, and he became an Atlanta Brave. He moved to Atlanta and became part of that group. His position changed three months before he was the most valuable player on the team and most valuable player of the World Series. And see, if, he hadn't, if that trade hadn't happened, then he'd have still been in Kansas City. The Kansas City Royals were in fourth place. They had little or no hope of making the playoffs, much less the World Series. And so they made this trade, hoping that in the year's future, they'll be better. 
But if he hadn't made that trade, if he hadn't positioned, if his position hadn't, hadn't changed, if his location hadn't changed, then he wouldn't be the World Series MVP. He wouldn't be the most valuable player of the World Series because, honestly, he wouldn't even been in the World Series. Right? So his situation, his position, made all the difference to allow him to claim this title. He wouldn't have been able to claim that title if he wasn't in that position. And verse 14 tells us that Jesus has this position that allows him the same thing, that allows him to do things that nobody else can do, right? And so in verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens. You see, his situation is not here on earth. He was here on earth, but his situation is now that he is in heaven. And in the Jewish faith, the priest had a very important role, right? They were to do all the sacrifices, which is what most of us think about when we think of the priest, right? They're the ones who sacrifice the bulls and the sheep and offer all those burnt sacrifices. But their other main role was that they are the mediators, okay? They are our representatives before God. And so they really kind of stand between humans and God, and they mediate, and they send messages, and they send prayers. So if you think about it, they are the, the post office, if you will. They're, they're the ones that send our prayers up to God, all right? And so if you were a Jew and you were coming to the, the tabernacle, if you're coming to God, you had to go to a priest. You see, you weren't allowed to come to God by yourself. You had to go through a priest. The priest was this mediator. He was the, our spokesman, this go-between. And so you had to get to him, and then he would send your prayers up to God. Right? And so there's all kinds of allusions and, and things in the Old Testament. You could go back and read about how the prayers of the priest will rise up like incense, and they lift up up to heaven. Right? And so this idea that he is our mediator, that the priest was the mediator, means that if I went to the priest and I told the priest what I needed or what I was praying for, then he would send his prayers or my prayers up to heaven. But I had to go through the priest to do that. Right? And then we'd have to wait for the communication to connect and the Wi-Fi and all that stuff to get to heaven. Right? There, there was this connection between the priest and, and, and God that nobody else had. But the problem was the priests were here and God was there. Right? But what the writer of Hebrews is telling you, the reason that Jesus is such a great high priest is that he's not here. He's doing the work there. You see, he didn't just do the sacrifice he is now our mediator, but he's mediating in a very different place. He's not mediating here, sending prayers there. He is there hearing our prayers, and he sits at the right hand of God himself. You see, we've seen this position of, of Jesus before, all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful word. Get this. After making purifications for sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, his priestly job, he makes purification for sins. And then he doesn't just keep doing that. He doesn't just keep sending prayers. He goes and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. He is positioned and situated in heavens. The same idea is in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, when it says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God, and get this, and intercedes for us, You see, his priestly duties are not just to sacrifice. They're to offer prayers for people. And the situation that Jesus is in allows him to do this in a much better way than anybody on earth. I want you to think about this for just a moment. If I wanted to, write a, if I wanted to talk to the president, for some reason I wanted to talk to him, right? I would have to go through all these different channels to get that message to him. But if his wife wanted to talk to him, 
If the vice president wanted to talk to him, they don't go through channels. They have direct contact with them. They just lean over and talk to him. So I want you to understand, this is what we have in Christ Jesus. This is why He's the great high priest. There's not this gap, this space between Him and God. When, God. when Christ wants to share something with God the Father, He just simply leans over and He says, Listen, Father, Michael Rakes is praying this right now. Listen, Dad, this is what Michael is going through and struggling with right now. You see, his position and his situation is not here on earth. He doesn't have to send prayers somewhere. He simply just leans over to the Father because he's at the right hand. He constantly has the Father's ear. He is situated in the perfect position to be our mediator in a way that no earthly priest can. And so the one who speaks to God on our behalf is situated in heaven. And it's the first reason that he is the title of the great high priest is because he can communicate with God in a way that nobody else can. The second reason he's the great high priest is because not only is he situated in heaven, but he's there because he's also the Son of God. And this is a very distinguishing mark between Jesus and all the other high priests, and really a distinguishing mark between Jesus and everybody else in this world. You see that they served throughout all of history. There's always been high priests, but none of them can claim this title as the Son of God. And we read on in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. We'll finish the rest of that verse in just a minute, but just a side note, this is the very first time that the name of Jesus has been mentioned. We've been all the way through the book of uh, Hebrews, all the way to the end of chapter 4, and it's the very first time the name of Jesus has been written in this book. But it's not the first time he's been referred to as the Son of God. In fact, several times throughout the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 1, we won't go back and dive through all that, uh, but in chapter 1, the author is really kind of making this argument that Jesus has appeared to the angels because he is the Son. Right? Singular is in there is only one Son. Singular is in John 3.16 that he's the only begotten Son or the one and only Son. You see, every high priest could claim to be one of the children of God. In the plural sense, we are all image bearers of God. We all bear His image. But there is only one who can claim the title to be the Son of God, the singular form of that title. right? And so for the priest, this was a special position in the Jewish tradition. They, they all held this position very high, but none of them could claim to be the Son of God. None of them would claim that as a singular title for themselves. They would say, yeah, I'm one of the children of God, just like all of us sitting here. I am one of you who are the children of God, but I'm not the Son of God. This is a different title that he gives to Christ that doesn't allow for anybody else to have it. Right? So he's their great high priest because he's situated in heaven. And he's a great high priest because he is the Son of God. And the third thing he says, he's our great high priest because he sympathizes with us. Right? Several years ago, there's this very high-profile trial, and uh, occasionally I get wrapped up when there's these high-profile murder trials. All right? I, don't, I don't know, probably because I grew up when O.J. Simpson was, was doing all his, like, running through the streets of, and riding through the streets of, of L.A., and there was all these helicopters following him. And, and I remember watching that trial, and just the whole nation was watching that trial. And so every now and then there's this high-profile trial that, that I'll just kind of get encapsulated with. All right? And so I was watching this one several years ago, and it was about this husband who had murdered his wife, right? And I remember kind of, I wasn't, like, I wasn't glued to the I wasn't watching it every second, but I would definitely follow up and be like, all right, what happened today, and what did they talk about today? And, and so I, I remember reading about this trial, and something very unusual was happening during this trial. They, they wanted to go from the courtroom to the crime scene, 
right? And which is very unusual. Most time when a trial takes place, it all happens in the courtroom. Then nobody leaves that courtroom. Everybody's kind of sequestered there. But the prosecution was adamant. They wanted this jury to go to the place where the crime happened, right? Because they wanted them to, to step into this house. And, and sure, they showed them pictures of this uh, staircase. And they showed them pictures of, of all the house and all the stuff around them. And of course, this is years later, so things looked a little different. But they, they wanted them to experience what this victim had experienced. Because they thought in their mind, if we can get this jury there, if we can get this jury on this staircase where this murder or, or, or whatever happened, then they will, they will see this in a totally different light. It will change completely their opinion of what happened. If we could just get them in this position, then they can feel what this victim felt. They would feel trapped in this staircase just like this victim would have felt. They, they would feel how dangerous this sense was and how, how, how dangerous they, they probably would have been or, or how fearful they would have been in that moment. And so they, they, position, they petitioned the judge, and the judge let them have it. He, he let the whole jury go to the crime scene and one by one step into this staircase where they said this murder happened. All for the reason because they wanted this jury to connect emotionally with this victim and feel what this victim would have felt in those last few moments of her life. You see, when we read the book of Hebrews, we find we have a Savior, a great high priest, that does exactly that. We read on in verse 15. And verse 15 is a beautiful verse if you're looking for who Christ is. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are. This word sympathize is interesting. It's only used two times in the whole New Testament. It's only used, actually, both times are here in the book of Hebrews. One here, and the other's in chapter 10, verse 34. And it literally means to be affected with the same feelings as another. Right? So you don't, just, you don't just think, oh, that's terrible. You feel what they feel. You are emotionally connected and attached to them. And, and this is very different than anything else that is going on in the world in the first century. Because I want you to understand, the majority of worldview in the first century was Greek mythology. Right? And this is a very distinguishing mark between our God and our, our Jesus and everything else that the world presented. Because what the world presented was there were all these different gods right, who created all this different stuff, but none of them had any connection to human beings whatsoever. They didn't feel anything. In fact, they took pride in the fact that they didn't feel. They weren't emotionally connected. It's part of the reason when you read Greek mythology, they can do terrible, ridiculous things. They can rage wars and use humans as pawns in their wars and pawns against their schemes against each other and not feel guilty or ashamed at all because there's no emotional attachment. They would see human beings just as the same as you and I would see a chair or a hammer or a tool or a saw. There's no attachment to it whatsoever. We don't feel anything for those tools that we use. And that's how the Greeks viewed humans. We were just tools to be used in the pawns, the games that the, the gods were playing. And however they wanted to use us was up to them. And they don't feel guilty. They don't feel sorry. They don't feel any emotion to it whatsoever. He said, but understand, there is a God who is different. Understand, there is a Jesus who sympathizes with you. He is emotionally connected with you. And that's not just the God of, the old, or the God of Greek mythology, but it separates Him from all the other Hebrews 
or all the other high priests. Because for the high priests, they became so disconnected from the people, they really limited their exposure to other people because they didn't want to go out into the city, they didn't want to go out into the town, and they really limited kind of their, their bubble, if you will. They really lived their life in this bubble because, heaven forbid, if they went outside and, and somebody died near them because the, suddenly they were unclean. It, it, suddenly, if, if they were in the city and a Gentile, somebody who was unclean passed by them, then they had to go through all this washing and rituals, and it was so much trouble. If, if we just stay in our little bubble, then we don't have to worry about all the dirt and mess that goes on around us. We'll just stay here in our little bubble. And so that's what the high priests did. They, they kind of lived in this little temple complex, and they lived in their own little bubble, and it really made this disconnect between them and everybody else. And this disconnect allowed them to disconnect emotionally as well, because then what it allowed them to do is stand up on this huge pedestal and judge everybody else. You are terrible sinners. You can't, I can't believe you're not living your life the way that you're supposed to. And meanwhile, I'm going to go back in my temple where there's, there's very little temptation, there's very little pressure, and you just do what your life, I can't believe you're not living life like I am. There was no emotional connection between the high priest and the people and because they were emotionally disconnected. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, if you want to follow a high priest, then follow a high priest that feels what you feel, that Jesus is different. He's in heaven, but he chose to come down and he chose to expose himself to this world. He could have stayed up in his little bubble. He could have stayed up in, in, in the realm where everything was perfect and everything was beautiful and the angels sang to him and worshipped him all the time. But instead he chose to wrap his deity in human flesh. He chose to dwell among us. He chose to come to this earth, to this creation that he made. He chose to walk in our shoes and experience life like you and I do. And he chose to do that because it allows him to sympathize and to experience things that we experience. It allows him to be emotionally connected to you and to me. You see, when you are broken hearted, he feels that. When you're broken hearted, he's not just sad, he's broken hearted as well. And I want you to understand that there's nothing that you will go through in this life that he has not already experienced, that he has not already struggled with, that he's not already felt. And some of you are thinking, well, yeah, no, that doesn't work, Michael. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. The world has changed so much. We, we've got all kinds of problems and situations that Jesus never had to deal with. We've got cyberbullying that, that happens to our kids and our young people all the time. And Jesus never had to deal with that. I mean, he, he never had Facebook or, or any of those things, TikTok, none of that stuff that, that really pours into our kids and, and influences them. He didn't have to deal with any of that type of bullying that our kids experience. You see, while the method of bullying has changed, the reason for bullying has always been the same. It's always been about devaluing someone else. About making them feel less than they are. About saying that they are not who they say they are. They are not who, who they were meant to be. That they are of less value than they really are. That they really are worthless. They're worth nothing and not important. And they really are nobody. You see, that's what bullying is. It devalues that person. It makes them kind of, that they are not important, that they are not who they say they are. Now imagine that's exactly how the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to feel when they told him over and over and over again, you're not who you claim to be. I imagine that's exactly how the Roman leaders wanted Jesus to feel when they beat him and whipped him as punishment. And they did it out in front of everybody because he was claiming to be the king of Jews. They wanted to devalue him. They wanted to make him less than everybody else. They wanted to use him as an example that they were the ones in charge. I imagine that's exactly how the crowd at the cross wanted Jesus to feel 
as they sat there and stood there and looked up at him on the cross, bleeding and pouring out blood and sweat, and they yelled insults at him. They claimed, you're not who you say you are. If you were, call down some angels. If you really were the Son of God, call down Elijah. Let him come to your rescue. And they spit on him, and they smacked him, and they continued yelling insults at him. Why? What were they doing? They were devaluing who he said he was. It's the exact same thing. People have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years, but I want you to put it in this perspective it is the God on the cross who could have called 10,000 angels and wiped out everybody there who spit on Him and insulted Him. It is the God on the cross who withstood all of that. The God on the cross who, who, who let people smack Him and let people spit on Him. It's the God, Jesus, who stood on and on. Not because He was powerless. He could have stopped at any time. He had thousands of angels at His defense. He, he could have honestly didn't use any of them. He could have destroyed everybody right there by Himself. He could have simply said, no, this ain't worth it. I'm coming down. Look at these people. None of these people deserve what I'm doing for them. But he didn't. He withstood it all. And he went through it all. Even to the point of death. Death on the cross. Why? So that he could sympathize with us. So that he could feel everything that you and I have ever felt. So if you've ever been unloved or felt unlovable, he knows that feeling. So he knows what it's like to have the crowd cheering your name one day and you are the highlight of the world. Thousands of people are following you and everybody was just hanging on every word you ever had to say until you said something they didn't like. And then they turn and they reject you. And they turn their back on you and despise you and reject you. And the crowd that one day is cheering for you and within a week's time they want you to come in. They want you to rule over the city. They want you to kick out the Romans. It's this very same crowd that within a week's time they're calling for your death. He knows what it's like to have everybody turn their back on you. He knows what it's like to stand alone for what is right. He knows what it's like to lose those you love and watch them wither away because of disease and sin and all that happens in our lives. He knows. He feels it. He sympathizes with us in every weakness, in every struggle that we ever face, in every heartache. He feels it. And He doesn't just say, I'm sorry that happened to you. He feels it. When your heart breaks, His heart breaks too. He walks in your shoes and He feels what you feel. And the reason I love that video is because for, for us, sometimes when we begin to see life from someone else's perspective, man, it changes how we look at them. And He feels it. He doesn't just see it. He doesn't just say, man, I'm sorry, that's tough. He feels it. The final thing that makes Him the great high priest is that He is sinless. In all the struggles that he ever faced, he is sinless. There's no other priest in any other time in the place of Israel that can ever claim that distinction. In Leviticus chapter 16, God has given uh, the people of Israel very important instructions. And he's telling them about this special day. And he calls it the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And it's the one day that the high priest gets to go into the presence of God. So only one day throughout the whole year, the high priest gets to go into what they consider the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. All right? And on that one day, his job was to go and make a special sacrifice. So this is different than every other day. There are literally 365 days out of the year. He's making sacrifices, almost every one of those, all right, except on the Sabbath day. He's not doing that. But every other day, he's making sacrifices for people's sins. But what if you forget a sin? Or what if you sinned and didn't know it? Where's your forgiveness for that? It's this day. 
So what the priest does on this day is he, he enters into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and he commits the, he, he does this special sacrifice that is really for all the forgotten sins. It's kind of the catch-all. All the sins that, that you didn't even know they were sins, this is the coverage. For us as a nation, this is the sacrifice for all our sins. Right? But before he does that, there's something special he has to do. So I want you to look with me real quick in the book of Leviticus. You may not have time to turn there. But Leviticus chapter 16, the words will be on the screen. Leviticus 16, verse 6. Aaron is the first high priest. And I want you to see, before he goes and makes this sacrifice for the whole nation, this is what God tells him to do in Leviticus 16, 6. He says, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. So I want you to notice the first sacrifice that the high priest had to make was not for the sins of other people. The first sacrifice he had to make was for himself. Why? Because he himself should not be allowed to come into the presence of God. He himself was unclean and unworthy. And so he has to be atoned for. His sins had to be covered up. His sins had to be forgiven first. And then he can go into the presence of God and, and clean off the sins or wipe over the sins of other people. But he's got to take care of his sins first. And so anybody that came to the, the, the Holy of Holies had to go through that situation. They had to sacrifice for their sins first before they approached the holiness of God. You see, but with Jesus, it's different. With Jesus, that step gets to be omitted. And see, in verse 15, the writer makes it clear that Jesus didn't have to cover his own sins because he had no sin. In verse 15, we'll read the whole thing, but I want you to pay attention to the end of it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now, I want you to hold on to this last part of this verse because this is huge. There's two reasons this becomes huge for us. It first becomes huge for us because it draws us to this idea there's a difference between temptation and sin. That you can be tempted and not sin. You're like, oh no, that says Jesus did that. Well, right, okay? He did do that. His whole life he did that. He resisted sin, and we'll get to that in a second. But it tells us that it is possible to be tempted and not sin. That sin is not, or temptation by itself in it is not a sin. Right? Jesus was tempted in every way. In fact, you can go back and read Luke chapter 4, where it says specifically that he was tested and he was tempted right, by Satan. Throughout his life, he was tested and he was tempted, but he never sinned. You say, well, Michael, why is that such a big deal? Because we live in a place and time that honestly confuses those two. We honestly live in a place and time that thinks, well, if you were tempted, then you automatically gave in to that sin. And that's not always the case. And the reason I'm telling you that is because there's a whole community of folks that were tempted and their temptation looked different than your temptation and my temptation. Their temptation looked, looked odd and looked unusual to us. And so they were tempted and they were struggling with these things on the inside that just didn't make sense and really caused them to question who they were and kind of what their identity was and what they were supposed to be doing. And they came to church. And they confided in either a church leader or they confided in maybe a friend who was at church. And because of their temptation looked different than ours, we just jumped to how terrible that was. And we shunned them and we shamed them, assuming that they'd already given in to this sin and we confused the temptation with the sin. Even though they hadn't acted on it, even though they hadn't followed through with it, they were just tempted in that way and all of a sudden we turned our backs on them. You know what? They walked out of our churches and they found another community with arms wide open that said, hey, everybody already says you're a sinner. Everybody says you've already done this terrible thing. You might as well follow through with it. 
You might as well jump head first into it. You see, what we should have done when they came to us and said their temptation and their struggles look different is we should have discipled. We should have came along beside them. We should have put our arm around them and said, you know what, I'm tempted and I struggle every day too. It looks different, but the temptation is there just the same. And we should have walked them through the possibilities of escaping temptation instead of shunning them for a sin that they didn't even commit in the first place. You see, there's a difference between tempted to sin and actually sinning. The difference is what we do with it. The difference is the actions that we put to it. And when we sin, we give in to those actions, either physically or mentally. There's a huge difference between being tempted in something and being given in to sin. So I want you to hear my heart this morning. If someone comes to you with a temptation and a struggle, and it looks different than your temptation and your struggles, don't write them off. Just because their temptations and struggles look different, their temptations are no different than yours. Treat them like somebody who's tempted and not somebody who's already committed this unforgivable sin that's shame on them. Treat them like somebody who's struggling because that's how Christ treated you. And then the second thing this verse points out is probably the biggest thing of all is that Jesus is sinless. And I tell you that, and this sounds crazy, maybe we shouldn't have to dwell on this so much, but six years ago, Barna Research, which is a Christian research group, did a survey of what Americans believe about Jesus and what Americans thought about Jesus. And among other questions, one of the questions they asked was this, while living on earth, Jesus Christ was human, and he committed sins like other people. Right? That was the question. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Do you strongly agree? Do you somewhat agree? However you want to phrase it. But while living on earth, Jesus Christ was human and he committed sins like other people. 52% of Americans agreed with that statement. 52%. Now, I can look at that survey and I can say, hey, that was six years ago. 52% of Americans said that was true or they agreed with that statement that Jesus sinned. And I can, I can see where that comes from. I really am not concerned about that study. Because I realize that there's probably at least 52% of Americans who are not Christians in the first place, okay? Who don't understand. And so this study they did six years ago was not church people. This was just general population. Let's go out on the streets. Let's find Americans. Let's just survey whoever we can and ask them if they think Jesus sinned. And 52% of them said yes, right? That survey doesn't bother me. What does bother me is that this same group last year in 2020 did a survey and they limited their survey not to Americans in public, not just to Americans in general. They limited their survey just to those who believe in Christ, who profess faith in Christ, who said they were Christians and believers in Christ Jesus. And let me give you these results. 44% of the respondents who believe in Jesus also believe that He sinned. 44%. While 41% say that he did not sin, leaving 15% to say they're not really sure if he sinned or not. The 52% of America doesn't bother me. But 44%, maybe that involves and includes some of you, are sitting here this morning and you're saying, yeah, he sinned. Maybe you're sitting here and you're that 15% and you're like, oh, I don't really know. I mean, he was human like we are, and so we sinned. Maybe he sinned too. But I've got to share with you that if Christ sinned, your salvation is useless. That for us to have salvation at all, we have to have a sinless Savior. You see, with, with, if Jesus sinned, then that tells me that Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 is not true. 
that it tells us clearly that he did not sin. It also tells me that 2 Corinthians 5.21 and 1 Peter 2.22 and 1 John 3.5, that all of those that tell us that Jesus never sinned, all of those are not true, which means the Bible in itself is not trustworthy, which means I cannot trust it to tell me the truth about Jesus, which means that Jesus himself would not be trustworthy. And it tells me this, that if Jesus sinned, then his death on the cross was for his sins and not for my sins. I want you to hear me clearly this morning. You cannot have a sinful Savior. For us to have any hope of salvation, we have to have a sinless Savior. It is essential for our salvation that He died for Him, for us, for, but not because He sinned, but because we did. If He sinned, then He paid for His sins and not our sins, and no one's going to pay for our sins. Because the sins require a perfect sacrifice. He would not be the great high priest. He would be like every other priest that came before God who had to atone for his own sins. But Jesus is clear, the scripture is clear, that he was tempted, yet he did not sin. And if you confess Christ, you need to know that you're confessing a perfect, sinless Christ because without it, there is no salvation for you and for me. That his word is not true and we cannot trust him. Our Christ, our Savior must be sinless. Our salvation depends on it. So it brings us this question. Since we have a great high priest, what are we supposed to do with it? How do we respond? Sitting here this morning, watching here online, what does the Bible tell us to do with this great high priest? And in verse 14 and verse 16, it tells us two ways that we need to respond. And for some of you, this is the response you need to have this morning. Actually, for all of us, we need to find ourselves in this response this morning. In verse 14, the response is to hold tight. There's a kind of a joke within many who study the book of Hebrews. They call it the lettuce patch. Because if you read through the book of Hebrews, there are several passages that say, let us do this, and let us do that, and let us do this. And they call it the lettuce patch. And you have to go through and you have to pick the lettuce out of the patch. Right? And I said that's a terrible joke. Right? But that's the way they do it. And so one of them was in chapter 3, but there are two of them here in chapter 4, verse 14 and verse 16. And the very first one in verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, here's the first one, let us hold fast to the confession. This word confession is a shared belief. It's a shared acknowledgement. It's the same word that we see in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus or God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is this belief that we have that He is Lord. It's this acknowledgement that we have that He died for our sins, but He rose again. This is the confession. And what does He tell us to do? To hold fast to it. This word hold fast literally means to reach out and grab a hold of it. To take it and to receive it for yourself. So I want you to understand, this gift is there for you. This great high priest has presented himself. He stepped through heaven, came to earth, died on the cross, rose again, and he's there waiting for you. And the question is this morning, will you receive him? Will you hold fast to him? Reach out, take a hold of him, and never let go of him. You see, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are wavering in their faith. And do we hold on to Jesus or do we abandon Him and go back to our old ways of life? Do we hold on to Jesus or do we give up on Him and go back to following these laws and these high priests? And his whole argument is hold on to Jesus because you're never going to find anything else that's any better than Him. Hold on to Jesus because He's your only hope of salvation. Hold on to Him as a great high priest because you're not going to find another high priest who can do for you what Jesus did for you. 
Because He is the only sinless one. Because He's the only sympathetic God that you've got any other options for. He's the only one that walked in your shoes so that you can hold on to His coattails. And actually, you can walk in His shoes because you get to claim His righteousness. So for some of you sitting here this morning, your response is simply to reach out and to grab hold of the great high priest that is there waiting for you. And for some of you, the other response in verse 16 is not only to hold on, but approach the throne. In verse 16 it says this, Therefore, therefore, because we have the sympathetic sinless high priest, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. See, in the first century, Jewish rabbis used to teach that God actually had two different thrones. He had two thrones because there were two characteristics uh, of God's personality they just couldn't put together. And, and so he had these two different thrones that he ruled from and he reigned from. One was the throne of judgment. Because when you read through the Old Testament, there are times when God judges sin and He punishes sin. And so there were times that they would say that God sits on this throne of judgment and He punishes those that, that deserve punishment. And this is the throne of judgment. But there's other times when you read the Old Testament that God sits on a different throne because the other attribute of God is the throne of mercy. This is the throne He sits on when He speaks of love. And this is the throne he speaks, sits on when he speaks of forgiveness. And he speaks on this idea that, that your sins can be forgiven and covered over. And for the Jews in the first century, there was always this question of which throne was God sitting on. Was he sitting on judgment throne or was he sitting on the mercy throne? And when I come to God, when I send the priest into God, which throne is he going to be sitting on? Which God am I going to have to, which characteristic of God? Not that there was two gods, but which characteristic of God am I going to have to deal with? David Guzik is a great commentator. I love uh, the, the, what he points out about this passage because he points out in verse 16 that neither of those two thrones are the throne we see in verse 16. There is not a throne of judgment and there is not a throne of mercy that's addressed. Instead, he writes this. He says, But here, in light of the finished work of Jesus, we see mercy and judgment reconciled into one throne. It is the only throne. It is the throne of of grace. You see, this is the way the two attributes of God meet head to head. This is where the judgment that we deserve meets the mercy that God gives us. It is the throne of grace that we don't deserve His mercy and His forgiveness, but He gives it to us anyway. It is where His judgment is poured out, and yet He fits the bill for it. This is the throne the writer compels us to. This is the throne of grace that He calls us to approach, to draw near to. This is the throne that He says to come to, and come to it with boldness. And I love what one commentator he says, Boldness doesn't mean you come proudly or arrogantly with presumption. He said, instead, boldly means that you come consistently. That you come without reservation. That you come free without fancy words. That you come with confidence and you come persistently. See, because of our great high priest, because he is situated in heaven, our prayers are directly related and straight to him. Because our great high priest is the Son of God, we have access to God. Because we have a sympathetic high priest, we can approach him freely without having to worry about all the fancy words and all the lingo that we there. Because our great high priest is sinless, we can come to him without reservation. You see, the Bible tells us that he walked in our shoes. He took on our flesh and he took on our sins. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. The reason that Christ 
took on our shoes, walked in our shoes, was so that we could walk in His shoes of righteousness as we approach the throne of God. It is through His grace that we can approach the throne of grace this morning boldly. And so this morning, a simple question is this. Will you reach out and will you make the confession that Jesus is your great high priest? And for some of you this morning, it's not a question. You've already done that. You're already holding tight to it. But for some of us, the question is, will you approach the throne of grace this morning? Let me ask you, when was the last time you boldly came to the feet of God? That not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you were arrogant and you said, yeah, I deserve to be here because I am who I am. Not because I've done this, but simply this, that you came to the feet of God consistently. That you came without reservation, you came freely without fancy words, that you came with confidence, but you came persistently as well. That there wasn't a day that went by that you didn't find yourself at the feet of the Father. And so for some of us, we need to reach out and we need to grab hold of the confession. But for some of us, we just need to be consistently coming to the throne of grace with boldness. Let's pray together this morning.